Welcome to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis, 52 Federal Avenue in historic downtown Logan. Open seven days a week featuring triple certified coffee, espresso bar, and coffee accessories. Ordering and location information at cafeibis.com. And Utah Humanities, improving the improving communities through ideas in action. Online at utahhumanities.org. On Access Utah today, our guest is Pulitzer Prize and MacArthur Fellowship recipient Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. And we'll be talking about her book, A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism. In this book, Ulrich pieces together through more than two dozen 19th century diaries, letters, albums, minute books, and quilts left by first-generation Latter-day Saints, the story of the earliest days of the women of Mormon plural marriage. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich uh, will be on the USU campus uh, on uh, Friday, September 21st. Uh, an event free and open to the public, 10 a.m., the awards presentation for a couple of awards from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. It's the Evans Biography Awards presentation. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's uh, book, A House Full of Females, is the winner of this year's Evans Biography Award. Rodney Fry, Evans Handcart winner, will be there as well. Then there'll be um, a... Uh, Panel, Researching and Writing Challenging Topics, 11 a.m. Those events, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. Here's part one of my conversation from March of last year with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Those of you who are not familiar with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, she was born in Sugar City, Idaho. She holds degrees from University of New Hampshire, University of Utah, and Simmons College. She was a 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University, or she is a 300th anniversary university professor in Harvard University, past president of the American Historical Association. As a MacArthur Fellow, Ulrich worked on the PBS documentary based on a midwife's tale. Her work is also featured on the award-winning website called dohistory.org. And she is immediate past president of Mormon History Association. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her new book, uh, as I mentioned, House Full of Females. Uh, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Midwife's Tale has been has been <clears throat> quite influential, I think, and it, it it's it's an example, I guess. I don't know if this is the genesis of of your approach, not yours alone, but uh, you're, you're definitely in the. Uh, I'll just quote this, your, your approach to history has been described as a tribute to the silent work of ordinary people. And you say you aim to show the interconnection between public events and private experience. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm a, what is called a social historian, but unlike many people who work on the so-called unknown people, my work has not been quantitative. That is, I haven't worked with averages and typicality. I've used actually some of the techniques that I learned as a graduate student in social history to apply to difficult um, source material. So Martha Ballard's diary was very boring to most people who opened it. The weather, you know, how many yards I took out of the loom, um, planted cabbages, whatever. And what can you do with that kind of material? Well, one thing you can do is look for patterns, which is something that, a technique that we use in social history. The other thing you can do is reconstruct stories, beginning inadvertently, you don't know this is going to turn into a plot. You see a number of references to illness and to infections. In one of the early chapters of the book, I really was able to reconstruct the evolution of uh, streptococcus infection, what we would recognize today as streptococcus, um, in this community and see Martha Ballard not just as a midwife, but as a general practitioner who's caring for everyone from a little baby to uh, the minister. Hmm. Um, I want to get into uh, something you said in the introduction to the latest book, which again is A House Full of Females. Um, and then I want to get into 
plural marriage and, and, and the experience of plural marriage, right? Yes. Um, you, you say you, you wanted to concentrate on diarists mm-hmm. um, and, and not memoir so much as diary. You go on to say diarists didn't know how things would turn out. There's mm-hmm. an immediacy there. Yes, absolutely. So I went for immediate records, not just personal diaries like, you know, I had worked on in A Midwife's Tale, but other kinds of day-by-day letters. You know, here's what I did today, writing to a faraway husband, Um, minutes of meetings, Um, even autograph albums. Because they're dated, we know when it was written, and we begin to trace relationships among people signing their names in a particular album. I use some artifacts. Um, in the years since I published A Midwife's Tale, I've done a lot of work with material culture, with reconstructing lives through the kinds of objects left behind. So I did a bit of that hmm. in this book as well. By the way, you talk about a quilt. Yes. It was quilted at the 14th Ward in, I think, Salt yes, Lake City, in Salt right? Salt Lake City. Which at one point had been cut in two uh-huh. by a man who wanted to give it to his daughter, so he cut You're it in right, two. Right. Miraculously, over the years, the decades, um, the two halves were found and put back together. Yeah. Carol Nielsen found it. Um, her husband inherited one half of the quilt, and in a very nice book that she published a number of years ago. She told the story of the creation of the quilt and then identified the quilters. They had signed their names, sometimes the date. It was a a kind of a diary. It was an immediate record. And thanks to Carol's work, going through and identifying 63 of the quilt, 63 of the quilts had signage, excuse me, 63 of the 70 quilt squares had signatures, and she identified almost all of those women. I then took that and went beyond her research to contextualize it in terms of what was happening in the world at the same time, and also to connect it to themes that I had developed in the early chapters of the book about plural marriage, about the organization of the Relief Society and other themes that were important. So it became a not really the culminating chapter of the book, but a really important chapter for bringing together multiple themes in one place. Hmm. You, uh, you cite an estimate that men diarists, if you compare that to women diarists, it's about a 10 to 1 uh-huh. You say that might be an underestimate. Of, oh, uh, I think it dis- is an underestimate, yes. Why, why, why so many more men? Well, that's true broadly in history. Men leave more records, often because records are generated as part of a job. And in this case, in Mormonism, they seem to be part of a religious responsibility, often for men who go off preaching serving missions. It was often adult men, not as today among Latter-day Saints, you know, 18-year-olds. These often were, were older men who were married and left families behind, but they were encouraged to keep a journal as a record of this mission. Some of them remarkably kept writing when they came home. One of those men was Wilford Woodruff, who later became a president of the church. But as a young man, still in his 20s, he um, became a Latter-day Saint, served a mission, and began a diary that extended from 1835 to 1896. Some, Unbelievable. Yeah, you say some 5,000 typewritten Yeah, Yeah. It's pages. Just, incredible. just incredible. And you use his diary, I think. In, his in this, diary in this. is very important to the book. The book begins with Wilford in his diary, brings in Phoebe Carter, um, who married Wilford in Kirtland, Ohio, in 1837. 
and I follow them Mm. through the book, but bring in other characters as the story develops. Use Wilfred Woodruff because he wrote every day, I think. Every day. Yeah, Yeah. he becomes a kind of spine for the story. Yeah. In fact, he preached journal keeping, right, to to other people. He preached journal keeping, (laughs) yes. Um, He believed it was the source of Scripture, you know, Mm. keep an account of God's dealings with you. And he told the missionaries, don't worry about what you had for dinner unless, uh, like Elijah, an angel brings you food. Mm -hmm. Then you can write it down. But of course, he didn't keep his own advice. Mm -hmm. He wrote down lots of things that weren't involved in his uh, religious responsibilities. And so it becomes uh, just a, I I consider it a great American diary. Mm -hmm. You, you say that, uh, of course, women's duties and words were considered essentially private and, and yes. therefore, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be part of the historical right. record. At least that was their intent. Um, and so this is kind of poignant that, you know, men's diaries, at least in the Mormon tradition, tended to be in bound journals. Yes. Women's could be on backs of maps or um, scribbled over by children later. You know, yes, yes. And they often disappeared. So um, there are more men's than women's writings because probably in the beginning more men wrote, but there are also more because the men's diaries were archived and survived. Hmm. What do we get? I just want, before we jump in fully into the book, um, what do you think we get uh, using social history? I think it's the, the, the label you've, you've put this, you know, mundane things, ordinary people's lives, yes. ordinary people's journals. What do you think we get from that, and what do you think is lost if we don't follow that approach? Well, uh, it's absolutely crucial, particularly I'm writing here about a new religious movement. There are probably a lot of visionary people in the world. Only a few attracted thousands and then millions of followers. So to understand that phenomenon— We really need to know about the people who actually took the words and attempted to translate them into practice. And that you you cannot understand any religious movement, I would argue, without understanding the followers as well as the leaders, and often without understanding women, because... um, There appears to be a pattern, historically, of predominant membership of women in many religious denominations. And so why are they there? Hmm. What are they getting? What does this mean through their eyes? Before we go to break, um, I want to treat—we talked about this at length in our last conversation a few months ago— uh, I want to trade it briefly here and, and get any updates, and that is this uh, this saying, right, this meme that's been associated with you, um, yeah. irrevocably, I think, associated with you at this point. Yeah. Um, well-behaved women seldom make history. Yes. It's on T-shirts and mugs and, uh, you know, memes. and uh, Right. Uh, this is just a, a kind of a passage you, you wrote in a paper. Yes, it was in the introduction to a scholarly article, actually, on uh, Puritan funeral sermons. Who knew, right? Who knew? (laughs) This would have a life of its own. Yeah. Um, Do you still get reaction, feedback? People still contact you over this? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Particularly in the recent Women's March um, after the inauguration, I got lots of Lovely pictures of signs with these words on them. It's a very, very nice, kind thing for people to send them. As, as the originator of this, this, I guess you, you're consider. I guess people would want to send you this kind of thing, yeah, right? Well, it's and, yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after the women's march, you did get. Uh, I did pictures and absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Uh, recently, in a talk that I gave at a college, a student came up. I usually get comments from students about the slogan. student came up and said, uh, Professor Ulrich, would you mind if I tattooed this? <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? 
I said, oh, I don't mind. Yeah. You know, I should have said, I'm not sure your mother would approve, but anyway. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's better than a lot of things which oh, you yeah. get tattooed, right? Yeah. 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 You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My conversation from uh, March of last year with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who was recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, and now winner of the Evans Biography Award, presented by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, for her book, A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism. There will be an event, uh, the awards presentation, that is next week, Friday, September 21st, 10 a.m., Merrill Kizer Library, Room 101. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich will be there. Rodney Fry, who's the Evans Handcart Award winner, will be there as well. And then 11 a.m. in that same location, researching and writing challenging topics. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and Rodney Fry and others, a panel discussion. More with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich following this break. Often the best vantage point for evaluating what's going on with crops on the ground is from the sky. Plant and soil scientists and farmers fly camera-equipped drones over large areas to see where to adjust irrigation schedules and where to focus fertilizer applications or weed and pest control efforts. The images give researchers valuable information about field experiments. They allow growers to diagnose many plant and soil problems before they spread and save the money and labor that would have been spent treating an entire field instead of correcting a localized problem. Support for Ag Matters on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by our members and by the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University, offering more than 70 degrees with courses available at USU campuses throughout the state and online. You're listening to Access Utime, Tom Williams, and my guest for the hour is Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, acclaimed historian and winner most recently of the Evans Biography Award for her book, A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich will be on the USU campus on Friday, September 21st for the awards presentation. That's 10 a.m. Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. Now part two of my conversation with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. So A House Full of Females, the subtitle is Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism, 1835 to 1870. The title is intriguing, A House Full of Females. Where did that come from? That came from the diary of Wilford Woodruff. One day he noted in his daily entry, found the house full of females. Um, He was a polygamist at this time. He had three wives. He was about to acquire a fourth But he wasn't talking about his own family. He was talking about a meeting he had attended that day at the 14th Ward in Salt Lake City, and it was a meeting of the Relief Society. And his first wife, Phoebe, was president of the society. So when I read that diary entry, I knew almost instantly that that was going to be the title for the book because it brings together two things, the household, plural marriage, and then the public lives of women, Um, not just participation of women in public activities and voluntary activities, but groups of women. The Relief Society was an association of women, a house full of women in that sense. And those were my themes. I wanted to take us away from a way of looking at early Mormon women simply as people in plurality in their homes and see them as people who were actors in community with other women. Hmm. You use the word gathering yes. as significant. What, yes. what does that mean to you in the context of this book? Well, gathering is a Mormon concept that when a person accepts this new faith, they have an obligation to leave wherever they happen to be and to gather and join other Latter-day Saints in a 
kind of covenanted community, a chosen intentional community that can help to prepare a way for Jesus' second coming. So, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this. Um, we know that Latter-day Saints were encountered mobs. They encountered opposition from the federal government. They went through a lot of suffering. And we sort of think about this, you know, it's a land of religious liberty. How can this happen? You know, some people have written that there's more sustained persecution of Latter-day Saints than of any other group. But I think the gathering is the issue here, not necessarily the faith. Because if Mormons had been distributed through the United States, I mean, 12,000 people wouldn't amount to much. 12,000 people in one town in Illinois, a town that was becoming the second largest in the state by 1844, that was significant. That community could control the political leadership of the county, and it brought that kind of opposition. A similar way, I think, in the settlement of the Rocky Mountain West, a lot of the conflict didn't come over religion per se, although religion played into it. It came over control, political control in a democratic society. And this was not an era in which there were protections for minorities. So majority rule in areas where the Mormons were a minority, but a significant minority, could end up in real violent conflict. Um, I want to read a, a passage. This is from uh, chapter 14. Um, I'll, I'll just quote this this passage. And then I want to have you talk about how you uh, introduced the book, which is a an indignation meeting, uh-huh. a phrase I hadn't been, at, or, or a, a gathering I hadn't been familiar with, but you say they were fairly common in, in, right. in the 19th century. Um, so uh, this is, in the United States in 1857, nothing was more ordinary than the gathering of white women to sew for the poor. This was no ordinary setting. You talk about this this quilting uh, circle, you know, at the 14th Ward. Um, and you go on to talk about the context. Congress had not only rejected Utah's petitions for statehood, but was considering ways of stamping out polygamy. Benjamin B. Ferris, the federal official whose wife Elizabeth had produced such vivid caricatures of women in Salt Lake City, laid down the essential argument. Latter-day Saints were not just sexual deviants, they were aliens. Although God had allowed polygamy to exist among ancient Jews because of the hardness of their hearts, no modern civilized nation allowed a practice that belongs, quoting now from Mr. Ferris, uh, now to the indolent and opium-eating Turks and Asiatics, the miserable Africans, North American savages, and the Latter-day Saints. The only solution was the ultimate disorganization of the Mormon community. This sets up that, that conflict. This, this was just for many Americans— this was just too radical. This was this was too much, and in fact, Mormons were alien because of it. Mormons were alien, and uh, you know, as Paul Reeve has said in a recent book, they were a religion of a different color. They were not recognized as white people. They were not recognized as Christian, even though they professed a belief in Christianity. And this is a highly significant passage um, from. Um, anti-Mormon book, but similar language comes out in federal legislation. Um, The anti-Mormon movement was anti-immigrant. It was anti-Muslim. It was anti-Jewish. I mean, you can hear it in the rhetoric. He's naming all the people who don't really belong in our society and using them to define Latter-day Saints. Um, This is a, for me, this part of the research, um, these themes are repeated over and over, and this part of the research felt to me like um, an aspect of Latter-day Saint history that I hadn't taken seriously enough. Um, I grew up as a Latter-day Saint, I knew there was persecution. I didn't really understand how out there the Latter-day Saint movement appeared to be 
And it, as I was writing, particularly as I came toward the end of my project, I felt like I was seeing similar things all around me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of international conflict over refugees, over immigrants, fear, fear that something is falling apart that's very precious and really matters to us. And when people act out of fear, they do things they may regret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why uh, there was uh, perhaps a, an expectation, a hope, uh, among some people in anti-Trump forces, yeah. that uh, Utah Republican Mormons uh-huh. would uh, would not go for the Republican candidate. In, yeah. the, in the end, many of them came home to the Republican Party mm-hmm. Be- because, as has been articulated by, by many, you know, um, Mormon um, political figures. Yeah. If you can other someone else, you can certainly other the Mormons, and the Mormons yeah. have been othered before. Right. Yeah. I felt a sense of identification, and I really think a lot of Latter-day Saints today are rethinking, you know, our own experience because we've been conceptualized from the 20th, late 20th century onward into the present as super patriots. You know, the ultimate American, the American religion, kind of the epitome of American values at every level. And it's really kind of shocking, particularly for young people, to realize, oh, my goodness, we were considered among the worst people. These immigrants are coming in and going to destroy our society. They're being brought in by nefarious patriarchs, you know, who are trafficking in women. And um, it's, a, it's a lot to get used to if you haven't grown up understanding your faith in these terms. Uh, so this um, 1870, you begin the book with an 1870 indignation meeting. Yes. What, what's that? Well, an indignation meeting is a little bit like a um, parade or a march would be today. If you want to call attention to a problem, what do, what do people do? You march on Washington. You encamp, you know, on the Washington Mall. Um, and it's about publicity. It's about taking a dramatic action that's going to generate public awareness of a cause. Mormons actually had been pretty good at this from early on. Um, may recall in 1844, um, Joseph Smith making a run for the presidency. I mean, nobody expected him to win the presidency. It was about national attention, getting attention for the cause of the Latter-day Saints. And so in 1870, when the House of Representatives passed a draconian anti-polygamy bill, um, a group of Mormon women organized an indignation meeting, um, and indignation was a kind of moral outrage, trying to attract attention and get people to say, we are being mistreated, this is not the American way. They um, organized a meeting, uh, three or 4,000 women massed into the Salt Lake Tabernacle, Uh, They didn't let men in the door unless they were part of the press because they very much wanted publicity, and they got it. Newspapers all over the country found it scandalous but surprising and puzzling. And they what, what intrigued me, they printed... In some newspapers, they they printed the summaries of the speeches. So it's a wonderful source for understanding the point of view of these women as they protested. So uh, puzzling to many of the national press and the people back east because uh, the the narrative was Mormon women are oppressed— they're victims. Right. They're victims we're, of this, yes. we're, You know, they thought of their legislation as we're going out there to rescue these women. And so to have the women stand up and say, you know, you better make your jails big enough because if you lock up her husbands, we're going to go with them. It was uh, uh, remarkable. And it's been discussed and understood um, from 1870 to the present, actually, as a kind of um, 
publicity scheme um, organized by Mormon men. You know, parade the women and have them say, we're not oppressed, we're okay, uh, you know, was a way to take the heat off them as oppressors. Well, um, it's an interesting idea. And certainly, there could have been no indignation meeting if Mormon men hadn't approved. But um, it wasn't organized by men. Mm -hmm. It was organized by women. And in fact, there were 58 of these little meetings in towns throughout the territory. It was organized, interestingly enough, by women leaders in the Female Relief Society. Mm. So women's suffrage came to Utah not too long after. A few weeks. A few weeks. And in the planning meeting for the indignation meeting, passed a series of resolutions, one of which was that the asking the territorial legislature to give them the vote, and another was that they be allowed to send representatives to Washington to plead their costs in person. Very, very interesting. That I wonder if that could have happened, but fortunately the Senate didn't concur with the House and the legislation failed. Hmm. But they were ready to go. Now, uh, 1871, <laughs> a year later, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, you say, visit Utah. Yes. Elizabeth Cady Stanton... Um, she kind of squares this dilemma, right, this paradox, by saying, okay, Mormon women are oppressed, but so is everybody, so are monogamous women. Exactly. She said, you've got it all mixed up. The problem isn't the form of marriage. The problem is that women are dependent on men for bread. So she saw it as a fundamental question of economic equality and liberty to choose your own way. We're talking with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich on the program today. Uh, she is author of uh, many books. Uh, she's recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship and uh, Pulitzer Prize. And the uh, latest prize for Laurel Thatcher Ulrich is the Evans Biography Award for the book House Full of Females. That comes from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And uh, she'll be on the USU campus on Friday, September 21st for the awards presentation. That's Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101, 10 a.m. More with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich following this break. On The Conversation, the French virologist who won a Nobel Prize for discovering HIV as the cause of AIDS and the Norwegian neuroscientist awarded the same prize for her discovery of cells that make up the GPS of the brain. They'll discuss why so few women have received the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine, what the award is meant for them personally and professionally, plus how they deal with the pressure that comes with high-stakes research. That's all with me, Kim Chakanitza. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah, and we've reached our last segment with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, author most recently of A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism. The book is the winner of the Evans Biography Award, presented by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at USU. And uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, along with the Evans Handcart Award winner, Rodney Fry, will be on USU campus Friday, September 21st. 10 a.m. is the awards presentation that's free and open to the public. Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. Then uh, those two, along with a couple of others, will be uh, as part of a panel discussion at 11 a.m. in that same venue, researching and writing challenging topics. Here's uh, the final part of my conversation with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. So this uh, polygamy, plural marriage, was was called sex radicalism, right? This was just, <laughs> as we discussed, is this just beyond the pale? Yes. Um, but as you point out in the book, uh, you can start to understand how women could embrace this. You know, two things. One is theology, which we can get into. This this was bound up in their religion and their religious beliefs. Uh, but also, as you you point out, they'd already pushed against the grain of society yes. to join this to unusual become, religion. To become Mormons. That is, they had embraced uh, the idea of modern revelation that um, just as in the Bible, God called prophets to give his word to mankind, he was still doing it. And they believed that Joseph Smith was that latter-day prophet who had been called to create a 
restoration of all things and to prepare for the second coming. So um, that was part of it, and that was a radical belief. Um, But the other radical part of it was going back to older Christian ideas of a a really corporate society, a communal society in which we shared and shared alike. And there would be, in the words of one of Joseph Smith's revelations, a feast of fat things for the poor. It's a biblical phrase, but applied to the here and now. We're going to create these new gathered communities, and we're going to take care of the poor. Uh, Harriet Cook, I think, spoke at that indignation meeting, and she talked about how she was very comfortable, proud even, that she had a choice. She could she could choose her husband, husband she of her choose. choice. She chose her husband. The man she chose was Brigham Young. She and and I guess she's the, still she's still fine with that. Obviously, even though Brigham Young had many other wives. I guess. Yes, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of folklore about Harriet Cook um, that she was bitter and felt like uh, Brigham didn't give her enough attention, and she had only one child. Um, But, you know, who knows where that comes from. But it was very clear that she was willing to stand up and defend polygamy. And, you know, there are plenty of women in the world, and there were certainly women in the 19th century that would be just as happy not to have the frequent attentions of a husband that liked a a situation where they could share— whatever the tasks were in their household with other women. What was the, what was the lived experience? And we should emphasize that you, you say in the book uh, some 40% of households were, 40% of people were living in households where polygamy was practiced, right? So and at the peak. At, at the peak. So l- uh, not forty percent of households, forty percent of the population. Of the population. Of the population. Okay. So that would include men, women, and children. Yeah. So the majority were not living yeah. polygamy, but but a but a large plurality. A were. large plurality and a, a very um, highly respectable, powerful plurality that is that was more common among people who were leaders of local congregations or church um, had particular positions in the church priesthood. So, um, you know, you, you looked at diaries and, uh, and you know, what, what women, put, women put down day to day, their lived experience. Um, right. Maybe tell me, maybe, you know, select a woman or two that uh, you found particularly interesting. Well, one of the chapters um, that I wrote um, used... Three diaries and a um, set of letters, sort of in juxtaposition, um, round roughly 1850, which would be just three years after the first migrants came into the Salt Lake Valley. So it's still pretty new practice um, and really showed the range of experience. So you would have um, a woman like Patty Sessions who was a midwife, who was totally in command of her occupation, was a very, very powerful woman, and whose husband was never quite successful in keeping a plural wife. He attempted once, and the woman left, maybe because of Patty. Mm. I mean, this was not a very happy relationship. When he decided to take a second wife, it's very interesting in the diary, Patty says she's determined to live in peace, and she prays she will be able to do so. She fears she may not because of weakness. Well, her husband died. So the issue then became, are these two women, both heirs of the same man, going to live together. So that was one fascinating situation, and I won't go on to give all the details, but there's an older woman with a younger plural wife, and 
Is Patty going to end up helping this young woman raise her children? Why were they going to live together? Patty doesn't think they can afford two houses and, and so on. Those mm-hmm. kind of dilemmas. We, we need to think of any kind of family, plural or not, as a sort of moving target. I mean, you start out at one age and over the age you may have five little kids at home and then before you know it, they're teenagers driving you crazy, and then you've got an empty house. So when we take a cross-section of the society, there are always going to be people who aren't really living in polygamy, but there's always the potential, and somebody in your family probably has a plural wife. So the contrast of that would be a woman named Augusta Cobb, who remarkably interesting woman who actually had joined the church very, very early in Boston, and her husband opposed her. He did not want her to be a Latter-day Saint. And there were surely other issues in this marriage. There seems to have been an intense power struggle in the marriage over who was going to be in charge. And Augusta, at one point, when some of the apostles, including Brigham Young, came through Boston visiting, just picked up her two youngest children and went to Nauvoo. And she married Brigham Young as his second plural wife. And it's a long, complicated story that I can't tell at all in a few minutes. But essentially, uh, her husband divorced her for adultery, and she stayed with Brigham and then spent uh, a good portion of the rest of her life um, trying to get Brigham to do things her way. Mm -hmm. So the power struggle continued in this polygamous marriage, but what it resulted in from a historical point of view is just a fabulous series of letters that she wrote to her husband because she claimed she never saw him. So she would put these letters down in writing. And what's remarkable is Brigham saved them. They're there in the Brigham Young archive. And um, she was having trouble with many things. One of the intriguing letters she wrote, she said, I want to go on a mission. And a couple of my friends want to go too. They're kind of tired of their husbands. They'd like to get away. So please call us on a mission. We're ready to go. We're daughters of Zion. And, you know, it was very tongue-in-cheek. I mean, she was a very clever writer. Essentially, was she saying, you're always sending men on missions, leaving their wives to manage on own. It's our turn. We'll go on the mission. Um, so the letters are amusing but they're also a kind of insight into the points of tension in the household. The idea of being left without a husband appeared for many women to be the essence of plural marriage Mm. because even if the husband was not off on a mission, he was responsible for another woman and another set of children. And so it was there there was this theme of loneliness and neglect that came out. In contrast, Bathsheba Smith, all love and light, <laughs> according to her letters, how she adored George uh, when he was there, it was heaven. Um, and you get the full range. Hmm. Um, what about the children. I mean, that's in some of these households, or multiple households, some men would have had many, many, many children. Many children, yes. Um, Well, child care is much more collaborative. I'm thinking of an example of Margaret Smoot, who was the first wife of Abraham Smoot. Um, She had been married before, had fled an abusive relationship and brought her only child, a young son, with her. And she never had any more children, which was a great grief to her. But the other wives had children. And she kind of became mother smoot to all of them. So I'm not sure it was always perfectly harmonious. 
But in the memoirs of some of the children years later, they talked about um, having the, more than one mother um, and cared for and loved by more than one woman. And for some households, that was a, an appealing thing. For others, it could lead to jealousy and competition mm-hmm. for resources. One of the themes in your book, one of the things you're, you're exploring here, you say, is you're exploring the pathways from monogamy to polygamy. And I'm, yes. I'm interested in, in individual pathways. That's, you know, if you're raised in Victorian-era America— yeah. Um, with, with you know, solidly ingrained with this idea of monogamy and, and probably, I don't know, before Mormonism, if that, if that was in the background that polygamy is, is evil and, and, and bad and everything we're fighting against. Um, and then you join this, what's mm-hmm. seen as an exotic religion. Uh-huh. And then at some point you become aware of the preaching of right. plural marriage. Well, yes, the pathways varied. In uh, the case of Augusta Cobb, who I just mentioned, the, the pathway was a desire to be out of a situation and the desire to be part of a religious community and to be bound spiritually to a man who was himself considered a kind of a prophet, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Um, the pathway for Eliza Snow, um, she was single. Um, her sister had actually fled a husband. It's fairly common, quite common among Latter-day Saint women, but I think that's because it's common in the general population that divorce is difficult unless you can prove adultery or um, desertion. Well, people often deserted, often divorced by leaving. Men did it most, and that's why women could then sue for divorce. But women also left husbands, and there are quite a number of them. I think um, I think I made a count that about 20% of women who entered plural marriage in Nauvoo in the early period before Joseph Smith's death had been married before. Hmm. And a number of them had not been legally divorced, but had come into the LDS community. So polygamy was an interesting solution, especially if you felt the end times are here. We're preparing for Jesus' second coming. We want to be bound and part of a godly community that includes those who are sanctified. And these marriage sealings were part of that process. Hmm. Later, the pathway to plurality, say you're an immigrant to Utah, you know about polygamy by that time. It's not a brand new, strange, mysterious um, it's there. Um, it's a pathway to security. It's a pathway to um, upward mobility, to be part of a household of a prominent man. Hmm. And of course, you've just explained it, and and those you know those who whose diaries you use uh-huh. would fervently believe this. Yes, but they they would never have been able to. Comp- Convince you know, you know the newspapers back east or the or Congress right. or you know it, it exactly. was al- it was always in fact the popular media was always a delusion or well really what um, they would say is uh, the United States is polygamous <laughs> really I mean uh, not literally but it's common for men to have more than one partner they just don't acknowledge them. And in our society, every woman is respected. Hmm. Interesting. I just want to close with uh, this interesting uh, passage. You uh, you say that reading these diaries, studying these diaries, you you notice some peculiarities, of course, mm-hmm. uh, with with the Mormon community in Utah, but some commonalities with other Americans. Uh, you use this phrase. Um, all Americans, including Mormons, had uh, had their boots in the sod and their head in the stars. 
There was that strain of American idealism. The idealism, and yet, you know, here we are trying to build these new communities and living in mud. Yeah, uh, it, it's it, but the two different versions, I guess, looked askance at each other. But, but yeah, it was, exactly, it was a commonality, yeah. as you point out. Yeah, very, and that's why there's so much tension. I mean, American uh, Mormons felt they were the real Americans. Hmm. Interesting. They were the real Americans. In fact, uh, I can't remember which poet. It may have been Eliza. The American eagle has flown. And now come to the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. Talking about Eliza R. Snow. Eliza yeah. R. Snow, yes. Um, so then we bring it full circle. You talked about how at least in the, I guess, the second half of the uh, 20th century, uh-huh. Mormons came to see themselves as super patriots. And, yeah, you know, yeah, right. So they're going to you know, back full circle in that case. reconstruction of the Mormon community in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Anything else you'd like to say uh, that we haven't covered uh, about, about this book? It's a complicated book. It's a long book. It is a book about diaries. It's a book about plural marriage, but it doesn't pretend to either explain or defend it. Um, I've tried to be balanced. Um, For some people, it was a nightmare. For others, it was difficult but manageable and instructive. It would teach me to be a better person. And a few, it was a glorious new revelation that makes people's lives happy. So we have to be careful about saying what was polygamy like. It was like many things. What intrigues me is the intersection of this deviant marital practice and the emergence of self-confident, strong women who are able to act in community to make a difference in their lives. And they believed a difference in the world, but certainly in the lives of the people around them, not just through charitable acts, individual charitable acts, but through systemic change by promoting the notion of equality before the law for wives and promoting the notion that women were citizens and had the right to vote. And I think that's really intriguing. I mean, where does that come from? In some ways, you could think of it as a displacement, maybe, of feeling a lack of authority within their own community to latch on to the larger story about patriotism and being Mormons. But actually, I think it's a story about dual identities, that um, these are women. They are also, to the core, committed to the Latter-day Saint faith. Sometimes those two things made life hard. As a woman, it was tough. But they also made them powerful in their ability to negotiate one identity in relation to another. Hmm. I think it's a good place to to leave the the conversation. We've been talking with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, uh, who is 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University, and uh, she's author of uh, several books. She's a MacArthur Fellow and uh, and winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and her latest book is A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism, 1835 to 1870. Thank you so much. Thank you. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich is winner of this year's Evans Biography Award, presented by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at USU. The awards uh, presentation, at which Professor Ulrich will uh, will uh, be, uh, is Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101, Friday, September 21st. And uh, that's free and open to the public. Rodney Fry, Evans Handcart Award winner for his book, Carry Forth the Stories, will be there as well. Then there's a panel discussion after. Another note, uh, on Thursday, September 20th, the Leonard Arrington Mormon History Lecture will be given by Darius Gray in the Tabernacle uh, in downtown Logan. He'll be my guest that morning on Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.